Things did not look hopeful for the wild boar junior football team. After finishing their practice one afternoon, uh, they decided to go into the local caves on a bit of a team expedition. Twelve students and their coach, Mr. Kanthawong. It was the monsoon season. And so as they left their bikes and their bags at the opening of the cave, it quickly began to rain. And the cave behind the students and their teacher filled with water quite rapidly. The students, they had no option but just to go deeper and deeper, climbing through small holes and gaps in the elaborate cave system that they found themselves in. And after many hours very little food or water, and the cave now completely dark and wet. team did not realize that they were now four kilometers deep into this cave system, completely underground. This is a similar distance really from uh, Jolfar Towers. If you go back across the bridge and all the way along to the Corniche, to the big flag, that's about that same distance. That's how far into the cave system they were at this point. The situation clearly, completely hopeless. The families could do nothing. They didn't know where they'd gone. Phones were not ringing. In those first few days, there as the boys and their coach were stuck, even uh, a Navy SEAL tried to swim to help them and drowned. 900 police officers and 2,000 soldiers were brought in to help, but these 12 boys and their coach were utterly helpless, completely on their own. There was nothing they could do to save themselves, and no one even knew if they were really alive. Several options were looked at for the boys. Some drilling was done to see if we could get down to them. And then over a billion liters of water were pumped out of the cave. On the 7th of July, after 15 days, there was still no sign of hope. Situation completely hopeless. As we carry on in 1 Thessalonians today, in chapters 4 and 5, as we just heard, I think we see this same hopelessness that every person... Every person on their own, in their own strength, needs saving. Every person here needs rescuing. Friends, we are all heading towards a certain death and a coming judgment. That's something no one here can avoid. As we walk through the text, I think this main point that I really want you to remember from this passage is, Christian, we can grieve with hope. And do not need to fear our own death. Christian, we can grieve with hope. And we do not need to fear our own death. Now our text here this morning, if you look at it, just falls into two sections. And each of these two sections has two points. So really four points for our time together. And so as we consider Christ coming again, we are to believe we have heard, we have, many have not, and now we live for him. Those are our four 
points. As we consider Christ coming again, we believe, we have heard, many have not, and so we now live for him. What I want you to remember from the outset, is, if you look at the text, is that when Paul is talking about sleep here, he's talking about death. This may be obvious to you, but it may not. He's also kind of softening the blow for us just a little bit, like how today when we don't really like to talk about death and we talk about someone maybe has passed away. We say that someone is no longer with us. We all know what that means. It makes death easier to talk about. And that's really what Paul is doing for us here when he talks about sleep. I think you'll agree that the world is at a complete loss about death. In our society, everything, I mean absolutely everything, is acceptable and discussed and talked about apart from death. It's almost impossible to talk about. It's hard to deal with. I think there's almost a kind of a superstition around it that maybe even just saying the word or putting someone's name in the same sentence as the word death or dead might in some ways make them just fall down and die there and then. There's a, a mystery to it for many people. There's a desire to, to quantify it or maybe personify it in some way or just an utter desire to ignore it and pretend like it's not going to happen. I think many see death as just unimaginable, unthinkable. There's a vagueness to what the world says about death. It's, there's an emptiness. It's shallow. Death is unobtainable, the death that they desire. If I do enough, then maybe I'll be saved. If I work hard enough, then I will maybe reach nirvana. If I'm kind enough, then I'll be blessed in my reincarnation. Friends, these are just hype dreams. These are just vague imaginations of what people strive for. They hope to achieve in their own strength. This may be you here this morning. But friends, I think we'll see here, the Bible is clear and affirms what many of us know about ourselves, that I have never done enough. I'm really not good enough. There is nothing I can do. I think that many people hope there is nothing after death, that they, maybe they don't have a hope for it, then at least this is what they, they conclude. They think this is my life. I'll do whatever I want. There are no real consequences. I'll do whatever I want. This life is mine. Look with me. Verses 13 and 14. There, our first point. Those first two verses. Our first point. We believe. Paul is writing so that Christians here will know some of this new information about the return of Christ, something he had not taught them while he was with them. This letter is written to the church there, and Paul had been with them, and now he's away, and this letter is him writing back to them. So this is him saying there's new information, something he didn't teach when he was there, and this is why he says there at the beginning, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed. This part of the letter is therefore to inform them, to give them this new information, this Opening sentence really gives us the purpose of just this section of our text today. He's going to tell them that 
uh, about those who are asleep. That's what he says there. Those who are asleep. That is, those Christians who are dead. Not just all people. He's talking about Christians who are dead. And then what he's about to say has a purpose, and that is to, to help them, to help them as a church. He says he wants to help them not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul gives us this purpose here in verse 13, and then he, that's going to link to what he says in verse 18. Look down there, and this should all be used to encourage them. Everything uh, in this little section used there to encourage the church. There's a lot just packed into these first few verses, but there, 14 really makes up the rest of this first point. This whole section is about the hope that we can have in Christ's death and his resurrection. And so, it's naturally, we're going to begin with the why that this is important. So why can we have hope? We believe. But what do we believe? Friends, we believe that Christ died and rose again. This is really essential. It's crucial, friends, that Christ did die. And it's crucial that Christ did rise again. It's crucial for the Christian to believe that. This is essential for our faith. If we don't believe in Christ's death and resurrection, then what do we have? Paul says there in verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. I think this sounds like it has kind of creedal qualities, meaning it's something that was repeated and said at the time by many Christians. Yeah, that's why we get, that's where we get the word creed from. Begins with this phrase. Look there, it says, we believe that. So for example, and then also uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that Paul hardly ever refers to Jesus, just as Jesus. He often uses the word Lord or something else like that. This is just so rare to see Paul using the word Jesus. So I think what we have is just a very simple summary of the facts for us. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. There is no justification here. There's no argument from Paul. This is what Christians know. This is what Christians believe. We also see from these words that clearly it is Jesus here doing the rising. Friends, these verses are so loaded. This is so jam-packed full of theology for us. Jesus can raise from the dead. That means Jesus is God. That means Jesus is not a prophet or just a man. Jesus is God. Like at the beginning of this section, Paul is not speaking figuratively about Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus is asleep. He says Jesus died. Jesus didn't sleep or his body wasn't hidden or he wasn't hiding in a cave somewhere or just pretending. Friends, Jesus died. He was dead. He was in in that grave for three days. This was not some sort of TV magic trick in front of a live audience. Jesus was nailed to a cross. The Romans were very, very good at doing this, if not the best 
at torturing people. They invented this method. This was how they tortured people. They were the masters of torturing and killing people. And they did all of this to Jesus in front of several hundred people. And then just to make sure, at the end of all of that, they stabbed him in the side, as they always did, just to check that he was dead. So we see that Jesus dies. And then we see that he rises again. He doesn't stay dead, but as the one who died in your place, as the one who died to take your punishment through his death, he now satisfies, friends, the wrath of God. And through his perfect life, so much happens that, and we see that he fulfills the law as given by a holy and perfect God, a law that points the law all through the New Testament, the Old Testament pointing to the need for perfection and a distinct lack of sin required that not even a blemish was allowed. All of the law pointing to a need for a savior, a perfect lamb, one that was spotless, that would come, that would come as a sacrifice. Friends, this is Jesus. This is not you. You cannot do this on your own. We know what we like. We know how sinful we are. We know how sinful we've been even this morning. I know it for myself in my own life. We each know how imperfect we are. But we don't fully understand how that is before a holy God. We think we're bad, but we have no idea how truly awful and sinful each of us are. What you feel bad and guilty about is just a glimpse. Friends, and so Jesus, in his perfect life and his sacrificial death in your place and in his rising again, we see that he conquers sin and has victory over death. As we see in Ephesians, just as by one man, all of humanity is born in sin through Adam. It is only through the life of a perfect man, Jesus Christ, And the perfect sacrifice of one man that we can be restored to God is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that that can happen. Friends, this simple sentence here that Paul writes, Jesus died and rose again. This sentence is then the very center of the Christian life and really the center of all redemption history. And not just that, but the center of all of history. Friends, everything we know everything we understand all hinges on his life and his death and his resurrection and even the days of the week that we know even our calendars friends all of this the tiniest detail all centered on christ he is the center of all things everything points everything before him points to him and everything after the cross now stands in its shadow friends everything before Christ points to him. Everything after Christ stands in the shadow of the cross. This is all because the one who has no beginning, the one who has no end, Jesus Christ humbled himself, leaving heaven, leaving perfection, becoming a man to live in the world that we know, the dirty, grotty, disgusting world that we all see and experience left perfection 
to come and to live so that many, many of you can be restored to him. Many sinners through time can be restored to God. And all of this for God's glory, all of this incredibly, is so that you, even this morning, you can know him, that you can worship him. So yes, in short, we need to believe in Jesus. And we need to understand that he did die. And we have to believe that he rose again. It's how we are saved. Friends, it's how we can have hope. I think we can all agree that Jesus died. It's entirely plausible that a man called Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and died. Friends, if Jesus didn't rise again, this man called Jesus is just still dead somewhere, then all of this... Everything in your life, especially this time here together this morning, is a complete waste of time. We might as well just pack up and go home. Not only is it a waste of time, but it means that he, Jesus, is a liar and a fake. And even more than that, he's a con man. Actually, we are left with no hope. We are left in the same situation as everyone else, if not actually in a worse situation than the person you study with or the person you work alongside. Because you've actually been deluding yourself about something untrue. Paul says in another letter to a church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Friends, there is no Christianity without the resurrection. There is no salvation without the resurrections. Friends, without Jesus dying and rising again, there is no hope. If he did not rise again, then neither will you. If Jesus did not rise again, then neither will you. Will you? A denial of Christ's resurrection is a denial of your own. Friends, thankfully, if you're a Christian, then as we trust Christ's resurrection, we also gain a certainty of what Paul says in verse 14. He says, As Jesus died and rose again, so will those believers, those that are alive. This is a given, but also. He says, those who have, and he says, fallen asleep. Christ has been resurrected. And all believers we see there in verse 14, it says, are brought through Jesus and with him, through Jesus, with him, all believers. Paul emphasizes in this first section that those Christians that are already dead will be resurrected. This was clearly an issue in the church in Thessalonica. They were worried about those that were dead. They were worried that those who'd already died, those faithful Christians who died, would somehow miss out. They were not only grieving and and sad for the loss of these believers who'd passed away, but they were also worried for them. Also worried that these believers would somehow miss out on Christ's coming 
again. And this rising with Christ. This section here is to be a comfort to that church. Paul is writing to comfort them. On an issue where they were clearly struggling deeply. They were either concerned about when the dead would be resurrected. Or perhaps just that those who were asleep would miss out entirely. As we turn to our second point, we see not only that we confess this return of Christ, we believe the return of Christ and how he is risen from the grave and will come again to take believers with him. This is what Jesus himself has said to Paul and others. To look with me at verse 15. We're going to go all the way through to verse 3 in chapter 5. That's our second point. We have heard. We have heard. Look there at verse 15. Previously, Paul had recalled what we believe, carrying you know, some sort of emphasis and authority, and now he's just bringing yet even more weight to his argument. Even those who are dead will be raised with Christ on the last day when he comes again by declaring that he knows this. How does he know this? He says there, by a word from the Lord. Paul is not prophesying here. He's not saying something new off the cuff in this letter. Paul is recalling, teaching from Jesus that he he has heard. He is remembering something that Jesus has said and makes sure, makes sure that we, it's clear to us in the Thessalonians that we know that. This isn't just Paul's thoughts and hopes. This is confirmed by Christ himself, the Lord, as Paul calls him. What is this declaration? Look at the rest of verse 15 and through verse 17 there. What this section is saying is that Christ is coming back. And those that are dead will be treated no differently. In fact, when Christ descends and we hear the voice of the angel and the trumpet sound, the dead will actually, Paul says, rise first. They will rise first. And then those who are still alive will go to meet them and Christ in the air and then will be with him forever. Think that when Paul uses we here in verse 15 about those who are alive. He isn't necessarily expecting he isn't necessarily expecting that he will still be alive when Christ comes again. I think he's saying just that those of us who are alive when Christ comes again, he's saying those of us that are alive today can have hope. That if Christ returns while we're still alive here today, then we will as Christ said, we will not precede those that have fallen asleep. Now, we don't have this particular written teaching of Jesus that Paul is referencing, but Paul is clearly here in no doubt. This is what Jesus has said. We know that in the the New Testament, we don't have every single conversation of Jesus recorded or every single teaching that Jesus ever gave. But Paul here is remembering a time when Jesus has spoken about his return and the order of which uh, that will happen and how those that are dead, those already asleep, will not be left, but in fact will rise first. For those that are alive, Paul is making it clear there is just, there's no advantage for us. If you're still alive today, there's no advantage that you have over someone who's already died. There's no extra blessing or anything like that. And certainly 
no missing out for those that are dead. I think this would have been just a great comfort for the Thessalonians. And it should be a comfort for us. Friends, losing someone is really hard. I think it's important for us to remember this morning, and I think Paul is saying this throughout this letter, that it's okay to grieve. To grieve is not weakness. To grieve is not a lack of faith. Really, to grieve someone is to love those that we have lost. Friends, if you are a Christian here this morning and the person that you've lost is a Christian, there's a great difference in our grief. Through this text, I think we can see how we grieve and how we can have hope. Paul here is making it clear that there will be a resurrection of the living and the dead and that those that are dead will not miss out on being with Christ. What will this second coming look like? What's it going to be like when Christ comes again? Look there, verses 16 and 17. They show us how it's going to be a quiet, insignificant, hardly noticeable... No, I'm joking. They show us that there will be a cry of command from Jesus. There will be the voice of an archangel. And there will be the sound of the trumpet of God. Revelation 1, 7, we read, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Friends, this is the triumphal entry of the king. The new king is being heralded. The trumpet sounds at his coronation of this king, the ruler of the heavens and earth. His entry as the dawning of eternity begins, his glory on display across the sky. Friends, more awesome than the rising sun at daybreak and his cry of command louder than any thunder heard before. The world in stunned silence will know that no matter if they are in Australia or America, in China or in Chile, in Scotland or in South Sudan, everyone will know that the king has come. Of this, there will be no doubt. Jesus is coming back. Of this, we can be sure. And friends, the whole world will know and the whole world will tremble at his name in awesome fear and reverence. It's the same sound. Those three sounds that you heard, the cry, the voice, the sound. That is the sound that will cause the dead to rise from their graves. The, the that sound will cause those souls to be reunited with Christ. Verse 16 is clear. Matthew 24 is clear. Zechariah 14 is clear. Christ will descend. Jesus Christ will come again. And those that follow him, the living and the dead, will be with him forever. Now before Paul moves on to wrap up this first section. He wants to remind the Thessalonians and us this morning about about this coming. Look at verse 16. This is for our encouragement. The other translations, the NIV and the, the KJV, they use the word comfort here instead of encourage. I think those two words, encourage, comfort, are just so helpful for us. I think that probably all of us if we're honest, at some point, even this week or 
this year have questions about death. I think death can seem scary. We worry about it. We wonder about it. Think about parents or loved ones, maybe even those that are already dead. Maybe you even feel close to death yourself this morning. Friends, we know for a fact that every person here will die. And then we know you will be buried. Your soul and your body will be separated at that moment. I think the Bible is clear that if you're a Christian, then your body will go to be with the Lord. You will be in his presence. You will rejoice with him. I think Paul and others in the New Testament mention how being at home with the Lord is far better than this life. And in Luke 23, we also see Jesus clearly turning to the man next to him on the cross, saying, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I do think this means that the moment we die, we are consciously with God in his presence, rejoicing and worshiping him. This is the beginning of our eternity with him, with him, and it does seem to be in two stages, one apart from the body where our soul is with God and another where after judgment, our bodies are perfectly resurrected and we spend eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth that are very much physical places. Even today, Hebrews 12 writes that when we come to God in worship, we're joining with, Hebrews 12 says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. As these are not some sort of dead, unconscious zombies just floating around or, or sleeping somewhere. These are the souls of men and women who have been made righteous through their faith from God. That means from Abraham in the Old Testament through to a Christian who just died this morning, they too are worshiping God when we do. So I'd argue that as believers, when we do die, we do have conscious life with God. I think from our perspective, of course, those of us who are alive, the dead do stop from our point of view. They don't talk or move or worship. Hebrews 12 and then Revelation 6 and 7 all point to the encouraging activity and worship that goes on for those that are now with him. They're seemingly aware of what goes on here. They worship God with us. They stand before God. They cry out in prayer and worship from under the altar saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they are in Revelation 7, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These verses all point to the fact that immediately, and consciously upon your death, you go to be with God and enjoy His presence. You worship Him and then wait to be resurrected at Christ's return as we see here in our verses today. Paul reminds us in verse 18 that all of this is for our comfort. We're to remind each other of the truths of this great fact that yes, 
We will die. Yes, those you know will pass away. And we can grieve. But for the Christian, we can have hope. We do not have to fear our own death. For in it, we find eternal life in Christ. Friends, Christ will come again. And if we follow him, if you're a Christian, then you will be with him in eternity. Paul carries on this train of thought as chapter 5 begins in these three verses there. Also to assure us, to assure the Christian that despite the sudden and unknown date of Christ's return, they have nothing to worry about. Look there at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul again, as we've seen many, many times, shows his affection for them, using brothers again. Whereas what has come before in this first section is related to the Christians that were dead. This second section now, really the first part of chapter 5, now refers to all those who are alive today. Verses 1 and 2 show us that unlike the first section, this part of the teaching, this is something that Paul has taught them before. He reminds them. He says there, he says, you have no need. He carries on, you yourselves are fully aware. They already know about Christ's return. This is not a secret. They know that the judgment day of God will come at an unknown and an unwelcome time, like a thief in the night. An unknown and unwelcome time. I once, when I was about nine years old, I had a burglar break into my bedroom. Uh, In the middle of the night, I was completely awake I uh, lay perfectly still in my bed as this burglar made his way around my room. Uh, he looked at my desk, my shelves, went through a couple of drawers, and uh, then decided there was nothing worth taking. And he left. Uh, that's beside the point. But it was completely terrifying. And my parents didn't believe me for about three hours. But it was terrifying. There is never... I can confirm, never a good time for a thief to break into your house, especially at night. Paul picks up here on another image that every mum knows too well. There is also never a good time to go into labor. There is never a fun time, apparently, for your waters to break and for that seemingly never-ending pain to begin. Look, there are the terrible and passing warning that Paul gives at the end of verse 3. He says, and they will not escape. And they will not escape. Friends, this judgment day is coming. We don't know when. Paul has made it clear that those who don't follow him, those who don't follow Christ, they will not escape. That brings us to our last two shorter points, beginning with the third, as Paul speaks of those who don't follow Christ. Look there at verses 4 to 7 of chapter 5. Our third point, many have not. Many have not. So this warning comes as many do not know Christ. And at his terrifying return, of which we will all stand in awe as we heard earlier, there will be no escape for those that have rebelled against God. If you don't follow Christ, if you've 
not submitted your life to Him, or if maybe you're here this morning and you completely deny the resurrection. If you are not a Christian here today, perhaps you're a Muslim or a Hindu visiting with us, maybe you don't believe in God at all, we're so glad you're here. You're so welcome here among us. But we've got news for you today. And Paul is making it clear this judgment that you've heard about, this coming of Jesus Christ. There is no escape. You will, every person here, but especially the non-Christian. You will stand before him on your own. As we've heard, none of us know when this is coming. But when it does, these verses tell us that there will be sudden destruction. That is what is guaranteed. That in that instant, at your death, the door, this opportunity is closed. That you will be dead. You will be separated from God forever. You may be here this morning. You may have your ideal job. You may have exactly what you want in your bank account today. You may even just be a great person. You may be a lot of fun and really, really kind. Friend, before God, none of this means anything. Our verse says, using this image of the light, our verse says it's only if you are a child of the light and a child of the day. Perhaps you're someone caught up in your own peace, your own security that you've created for yourself. Maybe you do enough yoga that you think that you've found the answer deep within yourself. Friends, Paul here is saying that it's in your sleep that you are in sin. Your sin has caused you to be in a deep and dark sleep. That you are completely drunk on the world and all that it has to offer. And that in your human hangover, you're sleeping. You're out for the count. Paul uses all these images to show you that, friend, that if you don't know Christ, then it is the terrifying wrath of God that awaits, for you have chosen the darkness. This imagery is the same as it was now. Darkness and light. Drunk and sober. Sinner and saint. As the comparisons are obvious. We know them. We can hear the warning Paul is giving. And when that trumpet sounds and that cry is heard and the whole sky changes, then all people will be divided and all people will know there will not be shock. Friends, there will only be shouts of singing or shrieks of sorrow. When Christ comes, there will only be shouts of singing or shrieks of sorrow. What about you? What about you here this morning? Friends, do you trust Christ? If you trust him, then again, these verses are just a great comfort to you. You're not in darkness. You are a child of the light. You know that your situation is secure. You know what Christ has done, that his return will be to call you home as we've just been singing beautifully 
in this life. We're almost home. But we must consider those that are beside us, those on our streets, those in our offices, those in our classrooms, those on our dorm corridors. They're still alive. They still have time to repent. You still have time to turn to Christ here this morning if you don't know him. Friends, we need to be praying for those people, but we also, above all, need to be sharing the gospel with them. Yes, please play sports with them. Please be kind to them. Please cook meals for them. But we must, we must share the gospel with people. We must tell them that they are a sinner, that Christ has come for them, that he has died and he has risen again and that he is their only savior. Friend, if you're not a Christian here today, if you've heard this gospel, then this gospel demands a response. Demands a response of you today. We must share the gospel with our neighbors and not just be kind and loving towards them. They will only be saved if we share the gospel. Incredibly, God has made this hearing of the gospel, this means by which people will know him. He has called you, you here this morning, if you're a Christian, he's called you here to bring this message to the people you know, to your sphere of influence, which is different to my sphere of influence, which is different to the person sitting next to you. God has put those people around you so that you can share, you specifically can share the gospel with those people. A fourth and final point sees Paul remind the Christian of the fact that we now live with him. We now live with him. Look at verses 8 to 11. God has given us all that we need to walk through this life and we do, I think, need to take this seriously. We need to fight and we need to put on, notice the activity involved in this, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Friends, these items are for our good and for our protection. We must help each other here day by day, week by week to put them on. What good is armor if you don't put it on? What good is the sword in your hand if you don't pick it up and swing it? Friends, God has given us these things, not just as reminders or not just as cute thoughts or things to put on your fridge. These are offensive weapons and they're defensive shields against the dart of the enemies and the lies of this world. Put them on. And we know For Christ, he's been called, he's calling to his children. That's what Paul means there in verse 9 as he carries on this previous thought of our salvation when he says, God has not destined us for wrath. Christian, you have not been destined for wrath. This means that you have been destined for joy. This means you have been destined for an eternity of happiness and joy with God. You have miraculously because of nothing that you have done you have been chosen those that have been called by God to himself Christ has promised in John 10 he says I give them eternal life and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is something that I think every Christian worries about at some point. Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Sometimes we're shocked about those that turn away or fall away. Friends, we know that they were never truly saved, that they were really never Christians. Paul is reminding us here in verse 9 of that fact that God has chosen his children, that we only obtain our salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. As he that guards you, he that keeps you, he that helps us to persevere for our whole life. As there is nothing that you have done to receive your salvation. And if you're a Christian, there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. It's not conditional on you. God has made the promises and God is the one who fulfills it. God is the one who keeps his covenant to you. He is the one that chose you. He is the one that saved you. And he is the one that keeps and sustains you. Paul writes in verse 10, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Friends, this is how we are to live, actively putting on faith and love and hope all those things that we have and remembering your security in God that you have received through Christ. And then verse 11 again, comforting, encouraging, edifying one another with these glorious truths of God's unending mercy and kindness towards us that none of us, none of us here deserve. You remember the fate of the young football team from the beginning? Well, John Valantham and Rick Stanton were the only two men on the planet capable of doing what they did on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of July, 2018. These two ordinary men from the UK who loved scuba diving in caves, apparently it's a thing, they swum through tunnels These tunnels completely underwater with visibility. I've seen some of the footage with visibility really not much further than just their hand in front of their face. Utter darkness and dirt from all this rainwater. They finally, on the morning of the 8th, found the 12 members of the Wild Boars junior football team and their coach, Mr. Canthawan. The challenge was then to get them out. What they had to do, they had to decide to put the boys to sleep. Boys couldn't make this journey on their own. They had to put the boys to sleep and then carry them one by one with masks, scuba masks over their face out of the tunnel, going that full four kilometers with each boy. Now, John and Rick had taken a rope down there. And if at any point... Even for longer than just a second, one of the rescuers let go of this rope, then they too would have been lost. This cave going off in many directions at various points. The way so specific. This way had been secured through the darkness and the difficulties 
that seemed almost impossible at times. The way was certain through this rope to help them reach the other side. Amazingly, after 18 days, all the boys and their coach were saved. Friends, I want you to be certain this morning that your way through this life and your way through the darkness and the difficulty and the pain of death, your way is secure and certain because of Jesus Christ, that without him, we would just be sitting here without hope, like those boys were, utterly helpless on our own, unable to do anything, even in death. Even while asleep, these boys still carried, still rescued. And friends, this is the same for us. If you are a Christian, this is a great hope for us this morning. If you're not a Christian here today, then this is your situation. You have no hope. No hope in life and no hope in death. You need a savior. You cannot save yourselves. These boys could not have even followed the rope on their own and done it themselves. They had to be carried through every stage. Friends, this is what Christ has done for every Christian, every sinner who trusts in him. He has been this way before. He has lived a perfect life. He has passed through death. The only one that could do so and then beat it and pass back through so that he could return and save you. A friend, in your sleep and in your slumber, carry you, leading you, holding you, something that you cannot do on your own. Friend, let me encourage you today, if you are a Christian, rest in Christ. Trust in his finished work on the cross and trust in his resurrection. So that no matter what happens in this life, when sorrow feels like waves beating against us and trials come, there will come a day when our faith shall be sighted. That the whole world will hear the trumpet sound and the Lord descends. And for all those that understand that Christ has dealt with all of their sin by the shedding of his own blood, you will be able to stand and sing with believers through the ages. It is well with my soul.